Okay, welcome to another edition of the Edlow Podcast. Subscribe. Um, so I say this every time. I'm really excited about this podcast, but I really mean it this time. So um, I have Ramina Wilkerson with me. Ramina has written uh, Walking in the Shadows, which is um, a book about her experience growing up in Iraq as a Christian Assyrian. And for some reason, I did not know how like Bible intensive that meant, (laughs) like what that meant. And I've learned as I've been reading the book. And so Ramina, thanks for coming on. I I love these, these human interest stories. And I have to tell you, so I started reading this book and as I was reading it, you, you self-published this, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, so sometimes with self-published books, you'll read them and uh, you can tell it's not professional, <laughs> you know, and, and you read it and it does, it's not super captivating, but the way you write and you share the stories from the very beginning, the beginning, just so people know, the first thing you read about is a situation when uh, your, your neighborhood is in the middle of missile strikes and the Iran, Iraq, Iran war in the 1980s. And I can envision exactly what you're saying just by the way you write it. And that's quite a skill. Have you, how did you develop your skill as an author? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I'm not a writer. English is, as you read the book, you'll see English becomes my fifth language. And fifth? It, fifth. That's correct. Yeah. And Grammar, I've never been good at grammar in Arabic, Assyrian, or English. And mm. God, called, God called me to write this book six years ago. It's taken a long time to write it only because there's so much healing that I had to go through, so much therapy, so much just rest- restoration mentally, emotionally, and being able to look past the trauma mm. to be able to put it down. But honestly, I've had to rewrite it. I have like 300 drafts, to be honest. And I've had um, several people edit it for me. Two of them were my sisters who are really good at grammar and really good at um, writing. This is their skill, not mine. But originally I wrote it in past tense. And then back in March, when I announced that the book was coming, it's officially getting ready to come. I was in bed and I hear this voice. It was at midnight, Friday night at midnight. And I hear this voice that said, consider the tense of your book. And I literally sat up and I was like, what? And you know that gut feeling? And so I asked my husband, I said, do you think I should write it in present? And he's like, no, it's a memoir. should be past. It's in the past. And I was like, you're right. So I grabbed my laptop. I take a paragraph. I research memoirs. Most of them are in past tense. Like it's rarely done in present. So I, I take a paragraph from my book. I rewrite it in present and I read them both to my husband. And I'm like, what do you think? And he just looked at me. He's like, uh, the present sounds better. Yeah. And well, he's, he's right. Cause it's great. Right. And then instantly I got out of bed and I went to my desk and he looked at me. He's like, are you going to start working on it right now? I was like, yeah. And I rewrote, started rewriting at midnight and worked till 3 a.m. that night and then had to rewrite the entire book. But I feel like the Holy spirit, Wanted this book so different from all the other books. Wanted it to be unique. Didn't want it published through anyone, hence the self-publishing. So it was very God-driven, very... I can't take any credit for writing. Like I said, I'm not a good writer. I'm not a good grammar person. But he definitely drove all of it. And there were times I'd write it and he'd say, take this part out. 
Nam of this part here. And I literally, he drove all of it, but then having good editors, like some friends and sisters who cleaned up whatever I missed, made it really good. You know, it's interesting that you you bring that up, the, the gut feeling, because sometimes, you know, we both, uh, you know, we're both Christians, uh, different denominations maybe, but still, um, it's undeniable. Like when you have those things where you know, it, you, when it, you know, it didn't come from you. Oh, and no. I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure if you've, if you wrote 300 drafts of it, you're like, again, <laughs> you know, but um you know, I want to go back to what you said. You mentioned you had to go through a lot of therapy and things like that. Did you find writing this book uh, was therapeutic for you in a way? I would say 50-50. I said it was tra- traumatizing in a way, but also therapeutic because having to write, yes, we go through trauma, but having to write it with emotions, you have to relive that trauma. Yeah. You have, I had to put myself in that room, in that corner, in my dad's lap, gripping his arms as I hear the missiles literally shooting outside my house, right? I can feel the concrete underneath me rattle. So I had to go back to that. I even asked my therapist, one of the therapists, I said, is it normal for a human being to remember as early as two? And she goes, for someone who's traumatic with this much trauma in the past, yes. Man, you know, um, and that's the thing that is interesting because we, we've had a lot of, you know, mental health providers on my podcast. And I just want to emphasize when we're talking about trauma, we're not talking about like a mom and dad that yelled at you or, no. you know, a, a, a divorce trauma. We're talking in the middle of war, seeing war crimes and atrocities trauma. I mean, real PTSD type of stuff. One of the things that you said that struck me in the at the very beginning, and I want you to just, I, I hope I don't re-traumatize you asking these questions, no, but no, go for it. you said, because I was born in a war, mm-hmm. I will die in one. That much yeah. I know. Yeah. And I want you, you were, I mean, how old were you when this, this introduction happened? Like the, the stuff in the introduction. That is about, I was about three. And to be honest, that's kind of a concept for most people who live in war. That's yeah. just the reality of it. And I was literally born in the second year of Iran, Iraq war that lasted eight years. And so that's all I knew. My nightly routines were missiles and bombs going off outside. So I watch our neighbors and family members and men go out to army and never come back. And so you just assume it's a matter of time for me to be next. So yeah. I, I hardly believed that until I came to us. That was still, and even when I first got here, it took a while to say, Oh, that's not my reality anymore. Let it go. Man. It, it took some healing to be able to let that go. So did you experience, like we hear here, um, when you hear of uh, soldiers who come back and they have PTSD, like they hear a lawnmower go off and they get, it sends them out to different, did you have similar feelings when you came here? Oh yeah. <laughs> the culture shock, the, the, the entire situation here was very traumatizing, to be honest. Like, uh, um, the first house we got in Colorado when we first moved to U.S. was couple blocks from the fire department Mm. the first few times the fire trucks had to answer a call in the middle of the night we literally got up got dressed and were ready to head out thinking we were back at war wow that's so rough 
And then we were like, wait, wait, no, we're not, we're not in Iraq. We're in America. Let's go back to bed, everybody. So we, we had a lot of those moments. Yes. Do do you ever feel like I got to imagine coming from a war-torn country like yours and then coming here and seeing the stuff that people worry about here. <laughs> were, were you were you kind of, I mean, is, was there ever a, par, a part of you that was like, what are you complaining about? Do you understand what's going on in Iraq? Like, do you understand the atrocities going yeah. on over there? Do you all have the, that? All the time. Yeah. But yeah. I also try to be sympathetic because my worst is my worst and your worst is your worst, right? Mm-hmm. And we're built to handle whatever's thrown at us. But to us, each level is different. And so if I never lived through that, I'd probably have the same level of handling as everybody else. And I'm not saying that theirs isn't strong. I'm just saying it's different. And so to them, that's the most traumatizing thing. And I can't just look down on them and be like, oh, you have no idea what's going on out there. I have mm. to be sympathetic and be understanding into, I understand what you're going through, but then more in a loving way, say, let me show you how it could get worse. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of steering it to show. And a lot of times once you shed light, people realize, oh my goodness, I, I have nothing to complain about. And that's the biggest thing with this book is not only for the world to hear the message God has and how he was faithful in my life, but to actually understand what's going on in the Middle East, why there's always turmoil, why there's always, you know, oh, it's just one more war in the Middle East. Mm-hmm reason for that one more war and there's families and children that are dying and i really want the book to get out there and the timing couldn't be better with what's going on right now to say here's what parents are going through tonight yeah so we we can definitely talk about that i have a lot of feelings on the uh, israeli hamas uh, conflict but I want to first go into, you are an Assyrian Christian, and for those who don't know, perhaps you can explain a little bit what that means. I find that to be one of the most fascinating things about your book. So, <laughs> I get that a lot. Yeah. So tell, tell us what that means. You, there's, it's a very rich culture in Christianity. Yes. So Assyrian come from the Mesopotamian Empire, one of the largest empires that ruled most of the earth long, long, long time ago. And they are in the Bible. They start all the way as early as the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, right? That was part of the Assyrian culture. And throughout the Old Testament, God uses the Assyrian Empire to punish the Israelites. And he, even in the book of Isaiah, he calls them the rod of his anger. But if you, the most focused one is when they became Christians and God believers is um, book of Jonah. When mm. God calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Nineveh is actually in Iraq and it's called Mosul now. So if you look up northern Iraq to the left, there's a city called Mosul. That was Nin- that was part of Nineveh. And so Jonah went and preached to that city. They all repented and converted and became God followers. And since then, that's where the Assyrians kind of became Christ God followers and then Christ came and that carried on. And to this day, Assyrians uh, fast for Nineveh in February for three days, just like the Ninevites did back then in honor of Jonah. And so, yeah, that's where we come from. That's who I am. A lot of times when I meet people, they think I converted from Islam because you hear in the Middle East, you automatically assume Islam. And that's correct. But there is a tiny minority 
that's not Islamic, that's Assyrian, that's still around, um, that mm. live in those countries and most of those countries, and now they're spread throughout the world because of persecution and numerous massacres that have been carried out against the Assyrians. So, yeah, and, and you mentioned and you make reference to the difficulty of being an Assyrian Christian in a Muslim country like Iraq. And so what is there something that that could be compared to that someone say who who has no idea what that really means like what what would you compare that to what do you mean yeah like so is there something that that might give reference is that like uh would it be something similar to say like the Jews in Nazi Germany or or something that people might be a little more um uh you know a little bit more familiar with Probably, I would say the closest would be the Jews and then mm. Germany, absolutely. But it, it just, it's crazy to live in a culture or in an environment where you're always on the lookout. And mm -hmm. Assyrians being executed or murdered is actually a reward, not a punishment to the Islamic community. So mm. I, I talk in the book when the Assyrian community, the Christians, opened a Christian bookstore, our first Christian bookstore in one of the cities we lived in. And the day opening day, the store has people, everyone's excited. A Muslim man walks in, points his gun point blank, shoots the clerk and walks out and gets rewarded for executing mm. and, and kind of getting in the way of that store opening that day. And mm. no punishment, no justice system, nothing. So you live in constant, yes, we get along with them. Yes, we live together in the same city but you never knew when it would be triggered to do something. Wow. So you, you referenced a lot of uh, different kind of um, disadvantages. Like, for example, you know, some of the things that you talk about in the book is your father was a, was a, was a coach, a volleyball coach, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, he was a math uh, teacher as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found it really interesting you know, and this is also another thing I found interesting was you said in your book, you don't really know what it means to be in a dictatorship until you've lived it. Absolutely. Right. And, you, you know, some of the things that I found in your book that were so interesting was your dad. The only reason he was really a math teacher was because he wanted to do chemistry, but they closed down chemistry. And so so right. the state is like, no, nah, we need math teachers. You're a math teacher now, you right. know. And then he goes and he's he's such a good coach that they want to they want to name him to the national team, but he's an Assyrian Christian. So after announcing he's him, they Persian, remove him. Half Persian, so yeah, that was yeah. against him as well. Yeah, yeah, and, really... yeah. So I mean, what other disadvantages did you see growing up as an Assyrian Christian female in the in the culture? Oh my goodness, as a female, there is no voice, no opinion, no. Um, Women don't draw. I mean, back then, right? We're talking 20 years ago. Have they advanced a little bit? Absolutely. Not enough to say they've been modernized fully, but no, no driving. No. Um, if, if Assyrian women were caught wearing shorts and a tank top walking down the market, Muslim women, men were allowed to dump anything on them, food, mm. drinks, whatever. Mm. And to a point, if a female is dressed in shorts, She's asking to be raped. Mm. And okay. Wow. And there will be no justice carried out against the rapist. That's how extreme it was. So the wardrobe, the and I'm not even saying like half shirts showing the stomach, just a simple tank top with shorts. 
was kind of like you have to be aware of where you're wearing it, who's with you, who's just it, it's insane. Man. So uh growing up in this culture, I mean, what did you do for fun? <laughs> we played outside. We still hung out. We still did things outside. We, as crazy as it sounds, I had a normal childhood. Uh-huh. Like, no. I mean, I mean, were you were you able to be friends with? I mean, you lived you lived amongst you know a lot yeah. of Muslims. Were you friends with Muslim kids? I mean, yeah. were you guys all friends? Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the blocks have Muslim families, and we built good relationship with them. You need to, right? It's mm-hmm. one of those where. Out of God calls us to be friendly and love our enemies, just, you know, love our neighbor as ourselves. And, but we also do it to protect ourselves. And so a little bit of both, but yeah, a lot of my friends were Muslim. We played outside until dark time, darkness, and then we'd run inside, eat dinner and just wait for the sirens to go off. Uh, One thing that I found really interesting as well, and maybe, um, you can shed a little more light for me on this. You make reference in your book that um, even though you're, you're a Syrian Christian, you believe in the Bible, that you were not allowed to read the Bible. Could you so, could you explain that? Yeah. So the Assyrian culture is very strict. The Bible is the most holy, which is the word of God, which we all understand. But they kind of take it a step further where you have a special shelf you put your Bible on and the Bible brings blessings. But if you want to hear the Bible read, then you need to go and have the priest read it because he's holier than me and he can read it better to us. So we mm-hmm. were never, it, it wasn't customary for us to grab a Bible and start reading. We didn't have picture Bibles and action, you know, with like there's now the action Bible where it's almost like comic book and it's simplified for children with pictures and images and things like that. That didn't exist. We did not grow up with children's version Bible. It was just the hardcore. But then we don't read it. We put it on the shelf and we dust that shelf every so often, but we go to church to listen. And most times they would read it in the old Aramaic, which none of us really understood what was happening. Um, <laughs> it's a little challenging for sure. Yeah. Especially as a young, young kid, I'm sure. Right. So um, yeah. And I, one of the things I also found really interesting was there were a lot of like and I think I find this interesting because Mormons are very similar to this, that you had very like specific traditions, like Mm -hmm. talk about like the traditions of tossing water or crossing a Creek or salt, stuff like that. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of, give us some of those, those interesting little things. And do you still do those things? Um, I don't not, not since we became second born. We definitely, we don't um, just because once you realize Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, right. Mm -hmm. Was the ultimate sacrifice. He kind of, at the new covenant of the Bible, he, mm-hmm. he washed the old. He said, this is the new beginning. This is what I sacrificed myself. So we no longer participate in the sacrifices to Jonah or to other um, saints because Jesus did that, took care of it. We don't need that forgiveness. He already did it on when he died on the cross. We don't, but because Jesus calls believers the salt of the earth, we bring flavor to earth, right? People mm-hmm. know that we are different by the way we act and speak and behave. So because he calls us salt of the earth, Assyrians are very particular about the salt. Like if you spill it, you have to like almost repent. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I spilled it and carefully clean it out. And you don't throw it in the trash. You throw it in the sink instead. So it's, it's cute. (laughs) It's cool to say I have that, that 
somehow got tied to the Bible, but we also know salt is mineral God gave us to supplement our body, right. add flavor to everything in life. And so it's okay if I spill it. It's not the end of the world. Or right. don't use scissors and at night or especially Saturday night, Satan will attack. And it's like, no, Satan can attack whenever he, you know, the door's open for him to attack. So it's just those little, you, you kind of realize they're not as, important once you understand the bible and once you understand what jesus did on the cross that those become more of they kind of get in the way of christ and me listening to him and his word they take my attention from him into oh it's saturday night i shouldn't use scissors no who cares sure and the thing the thing is is your 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 faith becomes very much more like pharisees and sadducees yeah because we we have that too like there's some things that i just like, I don't, I don't understand where they came from, you know, like swimming, like for some reason, culturally, uh, Mormons just won't swim on Sundays. And I don't know what, like where that came from. You know, my grandparents, uh, they, they didn't like, uh, uh, they were, there was an idea of like face cards are bad, you know? And, uh, and I just was like, I don't understand where this came from. Or, you know, we have the, what's called the word of wisdom, which means no, you know, you're not supposed to drink coffee or tea, but somehow that also turned into like any caffeine, no caffeinated soft drinks, no. But and, you can drink chocolate, which is caffeine. Can, yeah, well, that well, and that's the thing, right? Is that like, of course, right, I get of it. course, everybody ate chocolate, but it, but like, you know, if you drink it, it, the thing that's so funny is there were Mormons just love their diet coke, and then, so I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like that yeah. doesn't make any sense, you know. So it's interesting how how these little, um, like I said, these little kind of rules. It almost seems like people are trying to trying to uh, separate themselves as more righteous than others right. become become part of the culture as as opposed to part of the doctrine. And Jesus railed against that. So Absolutely, yes. It's, it's really interesting. Now, you um, you also reference in your book, which I found really interesting. What you you talked a lot about the rise of Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. and what I didn't really and it makes a lot of sense is you start by talking about how um, before he became president, Saddam Hussein, everybody loved him. Like he, he brought all this new infrastructure and healthcare and nationalized oil. So do you remember a time when living under Saddam was not a dictatorship or, or that he? No, because that was in the late 70s. Mm. When he did that, or in the 70s is when he did that. And then towards late 70s is when the shift started happening. And by 1980, it was like a complete switch. Yeah. He came into power and did that. So, no, I didn't get to experience it, but family members remember what that was like. And it's just, I mean, you look at some dictators, a lot of them are so charismatic and know how to earn and win people over, right? Mm. So, there, it's time to turn it on and say, okay, now that I have a strong following, here's what I'm going to do with it. That's a good well, you, and you, you mentioned also the Shia revolution in Iran in 1979 is almost being kind of a catalyst for his change. Cause you, you mentioned in the book that according to at least the family members you have, that it was a sudden change. Yes. And um, maybe you can talk a little bit for people who don't know, Sunni versus Shia in the Muslim faith and and how that affected uh, Saddam Hussein's kind of uh, turn to a brutal dictatorship. 
Right. Well, it's funny. I One of my um, co-workers is reading the book right now and he's like, I didn't realize the culture in Middle East. He's like, well, a lot of us are ignorant. Not ignorant, but clueless. They don't understand what's out there. He goes, but it's interesting that even the Muslim groups don't get along. That even yeah. with themselves, they fight and battle each other. Yes. So there's two types of Islam. There's this um, Shia and the Sunni. And one group believes that the right hand, when Prophet Muhammad passed away, one group believed that his right hand man should take over. The other one believed that his son-in-law should take over. And that friction just, they didn't get along since then. And battles have happened between them. But through the years, it has become more political than religious battles. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just, I mean, they still identify themselves as such and somewhat don't get along in that aspect. Yeah, man. And so you're, uh, so this turns Saddam Hussein into, uh, into more of a dictator. And you mentioned in the book, you said that the, the dictatorship, it really rules every part of your life. Mm -hmm. And you give some pretty brutal examples. Perhaps you can share a couple of things that, that would highlight for people what it's like to live in a dictatorship like Saddam Hussein's. Absolutely. So if your family member dies during war, you can't mourn their death because they died for Allah. They died for what the dictator wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. And so that was to be able to, to suppress your loss. Like how can you suppress the emotions that you just lost your spouse or your child who died in war? You know, you send your son at 13 years old to army because they're desperate for men and then you never get him back mm -hmm. not yeah. be able to cry and mourn and have funerals for them or um not being able to choose your education if you're lucky enough to make it to college and you get that far and then you don't can't you can't choose what you want that's very heartbreaking as well or um if you say anything against the government anything i mean the slightest negative comment it's punishment by capturing, going to jail, being tortured, or sometimes executed point blank. If there's a government agent nearby, they can execute you and they will not be held responsible. One of the hardest things, speaking of when I first came to US, when I first came here shortly after was the, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, right? Mm -hmm. And I was my first, one of my first classes I attended in high school was political science. And mm watching all the students bring cartoon characters and and making fun of president clinton broke my heart a i was in shock mm -hmm. because how can you do that how can you speak <laughs> ill of your president you, like you know right. for me to say you don't do that because i was programmed to never do and b how can you even laugh at him like it's so insane i was extremely saddened I understand the, the the concept of what happened, but I was saddened at the fact that he could be ridiculed like that mm. because we didn't come from that. We had to call Saddam Uncle Saddam. Mm. Every time you reference him, you have to say Uncle Saddam. So it's like saying Uncle Biden instead of Biden, right? Right. And so that was very like just such a different change, such a different environment from that dictatorship to a point where you have to reference him as uncle, whether you're two years old or 80, it didn't matter. You use that title out of respect and it's enforced upon everybody. It's just, yeah, it's very different. Yeah. You know, um, you brought up 
something interesting, and I found this interesting in your book is is um, you said that the that they were draft. I mean, it was a draft. They were so desperate for men; they were drafting people. Your dad was drafted, so for the first few years of your life, you really didn't know him because he'd only come back every once in a while. But you said this kids as young as thirteen were being drafted and taken out there and shooting guns, and you actually made a, a reference to how the kids would go out and then they would come back different. Mm-hmm. And could you describe for the listeners what you meant by that? Well, I mean, you think about our soldiers today, right? American soldiers go serve in wars or go serve in overseas. And then a lot of them, when they come back, they're traumatized. They're mm-hmm. traumatized and they're grown men. They're traumatized by, I mean, a lot of them come back with PTSD and have to seek help and they're different. Their spouses, their family members will tell you they're different. Now imagine a 13-year-old going through that same exact thing. And and carrying a rifle that probably weighs as much as that child and having to use it and being put on front lines in the name of Allah, and Allah is what Islam call God, or in the name of whatever Saddam had in mind and his intentions at that point. It was just so heartbreaking. And then you look at 13-year-olds nowadays and you know, they have a life. They're on their phones or out shopping or doing whatever it is. And it's such a difference between the the aspect where 13-year-olds here have a life and they can go out and have fun and enjoy life when in the Middle East they're taught to be soldiers and caretakers. And if the dad goes off and dies, then the, the boy has to take over no matter how old he is. He's the new man of the house, gets a job. A lot of boys drop out of school early on because they lost their parents in war and they have to take care of their family. And, you know, it, it, how does that inform, you know, we, we see a lot of very angry militant Muslims, you know, on, on the fringe, the jihadists and things of that nature. I, I mean, I assume that this, this type of lifestyle kind of assists in breeding some of that. Yes, Absolutely. Because at a young age, they teach their children that this is the right thing to do and this is what you need to do. So they kind of start losing that innocence early on. But when you hand them a rifle, then you can bet that that innocence is completely gone. Yeah. You shared some stories in your book that were just downright horrifying. Um, <laughs> uh, a couple of them, you know, one one was, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a friend of, of your family's, I believe, who... Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't want to give away your whole book, but can you just give a snapshot of, so, so Ramsey was, was taken away and was gone for a month, right? Yeah. He was taken away because there was an assumption that he had spoken ill of the government. So, and that's so, the other thing, like you can turn people in by saying so-and-so is talking bad about the government and they'll yeah. arrest that person and investigate an investigation. It's never just talk and interrogate. It's abuse like horrific abuse. And so he was very brutally tortured. And a month later he was released because they couldn't find anything. Man. And you know, you, you were a young child. Your, your dad tried to send you out and you kind of poked through your, your, well, never did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you, so you poked through to hear it. And I mean, hearing stuff like that, you were what, five, six years old at that point. That's correct. I mean, how, I mean, what effect does that have on you as a six-year-old knowing this is where you live? Back then, it was the norm. 
And that's, I, I use that word a lot because that was normal. All my friends and I knew what rape was at age four. All my friends and I knew what murder was and execution and torture. Like we all fully understood what that meant. And now I have two daughters and I look at them and they are absolutely clueless to that world. And it's such a difference from now my childhood versus theirs. And I show somewhat to an extent shelter them from that. But for me, it was the norm. Did you, gonna happen. What, what, what age were you when you finally left? 14. Okay. So at that point before you, you left, did you just, I mean, what was your idea? Like, what was your life? Like, did you just assume at some point that yeah, I might get raped? I mean, is that like, Oh, oh yeah. Wow. I mean, like, just like dying in a war, right? It's the same thing. It's you just behave to the best of your ability to make sure you don't get caught, to make sure you don't get in trouble and you just hope for the best, but you never know what's going to happen. Like I said, from wardrobe to saying something when you really didn't, or someone says you did, um, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you shared also about Saddam Hussein's brother, um, who was, by all accounts, was worse than Saddam. His son. Um, his son. That's right. Udi is that Oday? Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> you, there were a couple of other stories that I read that were horrific. There was the one mm -hmm. story about the couple at the wedding. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you heard that story, how old were you? I think I was five or six. Five or six years old. And <clears throat> so so for people who know, well, I'll let you tell the story. What what, what did he do? Well, he, um, they were allowed to attend any event, any party at any time. No invitation needed. He, Saddam's family and his agents, his men had full reigns over the entire country. They could do literally whatever they wanted with absolutely no ramification. And so one day... Assyrian weddings happened every weekend. And one day they decided to attend one of them. And there was this beautiful woman with her husband there. And he literally sent his men and asked if he could have her for the night. And his her husband said no. And he came and asked himself. And the husband again said no. And when the couple he left was waiting in his car outside. And when he saw the couple leaving, he ran them over and killed them both. Man. No consequences. But that was, and I, what's funny is I didn't even share all the horrific stories in the book because I didn't want to make people sick. I've had people tell me they already got sick as it is with what's in there. Yeah. But there was so much that I held back um, because it was too much. So tell me then, I mean, how did you, you know, from age, you know, for, for the 14 years, uh, how do you cope with that mentally when you're in it? You just push through. You, when when, you when does, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, well, when did this, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you had to do a lot of therapy in preparation for this book. When did this stuff start like kind of coming up for you? So the first time it really hit hard was when ISIS came to power. Mm. in Iraq. And that was back when President Obama was in the office. Um, I, ISIS took over and started slaying Assyrians left and right. They 
executed almost all the Assyrians in um, Mosul, interesting enough, because Mosul still had a large Assyrian community. Mm -hmm. Um, They decapitated children and put their heads on sticks out in the parks. Mm -hmm. And they gang raped women. What's sad is they videotaped all of it. And they posted it on some of the Islamic channels. So if you knew where to look, you could find all those videos. And I actually started watching a lot of them. And one of them was a couple of men playing soccer with a decapitated head of Mm. an Islamic man. And you watch these videos of people being shot point blank. And just this woman got gang raped. I mean, it was horrendous, horrendous. 20 men holding her down while others doing things like on video on internet and so i watched that and that's when my light flashed before me but in reverse mm-hmm. of what i would have missed out on had i been there so Man. my life my children my husband my everything you know in reverse and so i got sucked into the news and i couldn't stop watching and my personality my demeanor my attitude my temper just started shifting and it got really bad that my husband one day took me out on a date and he said, babe, you're scaring me. I don't know what to do. I'm just scared you're going to leave one day and never come back because we don't recognize you anymore. And so that's when I realized I had hit rock bottom and I reached out to a therapist and I said, help. I don't know what to do and I don't know how to get out of this. And so I, um, I started therapy. Then I did neurofeedback. I did 23 sessions of neurofeedback to help clear. What's, what is what is neurofeedback? Neurofeedback is where it clears the waves of your brain to say that it's okay. I'm no longer in danger. Because when you, when you live in danger for so long, you respond to everything out of fight or flight, even when you don't have to. Even if you're saying, do I want Pepsi or water? You're doing out of out of fight and flight. It's not calm. It's not the peaceful, mm, what do I want to drink today? So neurofeedback clears that up and tells your nervous system to calm down, that it's okay. And it rewires your brain in a healthy way to say, I'm not in danger anymore. How, how do you, how do you do neurofeedback? So, is it talk, like talk therapy or is it something well, different? It's a, so they put two clips right here and two back here. And then you listen to music or you watch certain movies. And in that music, it's 33 minutes long. There's clicks and sounds that are inserted inside the music or inside the movie. You can only watch what's assigned, what's connected to that program. Mm-hmm. And the brain picks that up and that literally starts clearing up. And so I did 23 sessions of that. And that finally helped me to a point where I realized I'm not fight or flight anymore. I'm not in Iraq anymore, that I am here, I'm safe, it's okay. Let's turn this around and use it for good. Do you, do you, do you feel like, um, in that situation, was there a little bit of, sometimes you hear like, um, soldiers who come back, uh, having survivor's guilt. Did you have a little bit of that? I did with ISIS for sure. Mm. Cause you were, cause you were thinking, okay, so if I hadn't left, I'd be there with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Here yeah. I am living life. And even, even after therapy, there are days where like going on a Disney trip, right? Something fun for my family. I do feel guilty sometimes. I'm like, I shouldn't be here enjoying Disney when I know there's families losing their children or families living through that. 
that turmoil that I grew up in. Like when Ukraine got attacked, I watched for days as Russia surrounded. And the day they attacked, I broke down and lost it because I, I remembered that fear of waiting, being surrounded by soldiers and waiting for that first missile to hit. And where is it going to hit? I remember that feeling. And same with Israel. Like I instantly go there the first week of Israel's attack and Hamas, like both sides, both sides, Islam or not, they're losing children. They're losing family members, right? With those innocent people that are caught in the middle is the hardest part. I had to take a sleeping pill to go to bed. Like, yes, I'm recovered. Yes, I'm on the other side of it. But that doesn't mean that I can't be taken back there. Yeah. Instantly. And to be honest, some nights I turn on um, Golden Girls. So my brain listens to that instead of going, because my brain wants to go, Oop, guess what's going to happen? Well, nope, come back. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, there's not a better show out there. Right? <laughs> something where I know well enough that I don't need to be awake to watch. Right. But enough to say my brain is trying to listen instead of going where it wants to go. And literally the first week, I will admit I had to take sleeping pills to be able to sleep through the night. Because I know it's hard to shut that off. So, so people who don't know, I mean, this is, you are uniquely qualified to talk about this because you've lived in the area. I mean, what is your feeling on this is Israeli Hamas war? I mean, I've, I've seen, I saw some of the videos of the Hamas, you know, uh, going into these Israeli villages and it, it was freaking horrific to see yeah. what they were doing and that and that's what i think is so hard about this is that you're sitting there and some people are like i mean i can understand the israeli anger when they're like oh we want a ceasefire now <laughs> oh really you know yeah. you want a ceasefire now you come into our, our place and behead you know kids and rape our women and then you're like ah please don't kill us right i mean um what is i mean as someone who's been you know you're not jewish you're not you're not Muslim, you know, you don't, you're not in Israel, you're not in Hamas, but you've lived amongst them all. Uh, what is your view on, on this, uh, this conflict? To, it's hard not to side with Israel on, on it, to be honest. And it's so heartbreaking to watch people who are celebrating the damage Israel is enduring. Because if you look at the Bible and you look at the Old Testament, who had the land? Israel did. Right. Who named? But then Romans came and took over, and they named it Palestine. Why did they name it Palestine? Is because to despise the Jews, they named it after one of Jewish Jewish people's number one enemy was the Palest um, the Philistines. Mm-hmm. If you look back in history, most of Israel's battles were against the Philistines, mm-hmm. and so Romans, being um, the evil people that they were back then, they, when they took over Israel, they named it Palestine to do that, to irk the Jewish people. And then one thing you, once you, if you do research, extensive research on Islam, you learn that a lot of times the way they take over a land is by taking their biggest landmark down. Mm-hmm. And so they came and tore down the um, Solomon's temple. What more could be Jewish than the Solomon's temple, Right. They take it down, they claim it, and they say, this is our land. No, it's not. God gave them that long time ago. That is theirs. They've earned it. They've So for them to come now and attack Israel and saying this is our land is so heartbreaking because history says otherwise. 
But then if you look how they took over Libya and you look how they took over Iraq and you look just research how they took over those countries, the so Daniel in the book, the book of Daniel in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar's temple, the, the castle, the palace he had built is in Babylon. Babylon is in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Daniel was in Iraq for a long time, right? He was taken captive from Israel to Iraq. Guess what they did to that? palace it has been converted to a mosque mm-hmm. they take landmarks tear them down convert them and then they claim that area and so that's the hard part to watch be like no this isn't yours but then i'm not saying that yes muslims are in the wrong in terms of that but my god they're losing family members too like they're losing innocent people both sides and somehow we have to show love for both sides because they're both suffering right now yeah, and it's but it's hard when you hear the stories, you know, that like you've you've lived amongst mm-hmm. some of these things and you've heard some of these stories and you hear them and they're rather, you know, they're rather barbaric. And it's hard. I was just thinking about this today because I'm hearing how Israel is they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, Israel, you're you're going in there and you're you're killing innocent people you're killing civilians and we don't like how many civilians you're killing and you sit there and you're just like didn't didn't they just come in and just start indiscriminately mm-hmm. killing everybody i mean you know what i mean like women right. children right. you know what i mean they killed everybody and they gloat about it and um i heard one uh, commentator say uh it was a it was a controversial comment um saying that you know they're worse than the nazis and the reason he said that is because the nazis tried to hide it but they're putting it they're putting it out on social media. If you know where to look on the Islamic channels, you will find horrific videos. I found one video of the first day of attack. They kidnapped this woman. She's half um, Jew- Jewish, half German. They posted what they did to her and they sent the video to her parents. Yeah. Like, just- who does that? But they have no remorse in that. That's the hard part is knowing these atrocities are happening with absolutely zero remorse. Because their book, the Quran, calls them to do that. They call it calls them to take up arms against anyone that's not Islam, and so to them they'll be rewarded in heaven for these atrocities. But we all know that's not God. That's not our God. God is loving. Not He doesn't call us to go take up arms and execute everyone in our way. There's a there's a story, and I want to. I want to uh, highlight this just simply so that people, you know, are not thinking we're not just talking trash on Muslims here. You know, um, you know, there's a story that I that really resonated with me in your in your book where you share that one day you're coming home from school. I think you were in your first in first grade or something like that, mm-hmm. and your mom is racing you away from school. <laughs> yeah, and, I remember and, that. And, uh, and and then come to find out that Saddam and and some of his people went and just shot up an Assyrian Christian school. Uh, it wasn't a Syrian Christian. It was just a school. It was an elementary school because at the end of the day, he wanted the people to still follow him and to fear him. So he sometimes tortured his own people as well. His own Islam as well got tortured. He opened fire with his men on elementary kids as they were coming out of school at the end of the day because he wanted to make sure the fear was still being instilled in people and they were still suppressed. Mm, Man, it's rough stuff, you know. I mean, I have kids that are that age, you know. I have a daughter who's 14 and a daughter who's 12. And, you know, I have two boys that are 17 and 10. And, 
you know, the lives that they live are so different than this. And it's hard to believe that there are, there are kids that have lived in this, um, in this type of environment. And I got to tell you, it's just, it's, it's, I, it's so hard for me to hear that you as a 14 year old girl just were like, yeah, I could probably get raped. (laughs) Like, like it's a part of life. You know what I mean? (laughs) It is safe for a lot of them. Yeah. Or, or even just, you know, you, uh, you know, you could lose a family member randomly. They could be taken away for months because somebody just ratted them out, even if they didn't do anything and said, oh, yeah, you said something about the government. They'd be gone for a month and suffer atrocities. Um, and so now when did you so, so talk about leaving? But like what what prompted that? Not I'm obviously not that far into the book. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part. So. Once you, so we end up escaping to several different countries. And when we get, come back, we get deported by one of them. I don't want to give away the ending. Um, Mm -hmm. We serve with missionaries because of war. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, organizations came to Iraq to provide aid. United Nations, UNICEF, Red Cross, And so many others, especially mostly missionary organizations, would come bring food, medicine, and Bibles, and they would minister and um, give away food and clothing. Um, And we started working with them because we spoke the language. We understood the city. We understood the people. And Saddam didn't like that, but he couldn't get to us because of where we were located. And um, eventually, the city we were in needed his help. And he said, I will come as long as I have my hands on everyone that works for Americans. And that city said, come on in. And within hours, his troops were in. And so that started, that happened. And so he declared our death sentence. And Mm -hmm. a few days before Bill Clinton declared Operation Pacific Haven, which was not announced in America because he didn't want to tip Saddam off or anyone in the Middle East to know that this was happening. So the military, Congress, and President Bill Clinton and his administration were the only one who knew. And so they launched the operation, and the soldiers actually came and rescued us in the middle of the night right before our execution. Wow. And when you say ours, I mean, how many people are we talking? Just your family? uh, 5,000 families or 5,000 people that that were working for Americans. Wow. Man. So... He ordered your execution. How old are you? You're 14? 13? 14. So what are you feeling in that in that moment when you hear your it we're done? Mm. I mean, it's coming. It finally caught up to us. We've been it's been chasing us since I was a little girl, and here it is. It's knocking at the door and we're just waiting for us to open. And literally, that was the thought process. There was nowhere you can't leave. Like here you can travel and go see countries. You can't do that in the Middle East. You can't leave. Your country without permission, especially countries that are at war, they lock down. So to leave that country, a all the embassies have left. Like all the people that run those embassies have left. Most of them get bombed during war, and then all the borders are shut down. So you either trek on foot or escape through a car and pray that you don't get caught. If you get caught, you're going against the government. So you get executed after torture, of course. Or you make it and you make it, you're at the mercy of whatever country you make it to. And you pray that they don't send you back and they don't do things to you because they're still similar mentality to the country you escaped. 
Most yeah. of the Middle East has that mentality. And so, yeah. So uh, perhaps you can share, well, okay, so, but you were just, I mean, let's say in the 24 hours, I mean, how, how much time was there between the death sentence and the rescue? About a week. Okay. So you have a week to chew on this information. Like well, we had a couple months to chew on it because that statement was made in August, but for mm. it to be carried out, it was about November. And then we got rescued on December 5th. So, but in that time, that week where you're like the death sentence is being carried out and you don't know that you're being rescued. Yeah. You're just accepting. Yeah. I'm going to. We lived, we lived in different houses. We each had a backpack and we stayed with friends. And every three days we'd go back to the house. We'd pack up our new outfits and go back and stay at someone's house until, and we just did that for a while. And when we found out about President Clinton's declaration, to be honest, it was hard to believe because my entire life, we've never mattered. No one ever cared right? You feel like less than a human. You're being treated as less than a human. And all of a sudden, the president of the United States of America wants to save you. Mm -hmm. And so for a while, we really thought we were being traded for oil, that it was just a political agenda. Mm -hmm. Because that's all you know. Wow. And we actually did get rescued. And so I will forever be grateful and indebted to President Bill Clinton and what he did for my family. And that was the other hard part is when I first got here and people are mocking him and here I am going, he just saved my life. Right. I have no idea what he did for me. Well, you know, life aside, he saved like he saved all of us. And so that was really hard to swallow. Well, you know, what's interesting about that. And I, and I think about this quite a bit is that um, nobody is all one thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like we think about what you, you said about Saddam Hussein. I mean, you, you shared about before he became a brutal dictator, he did, he really brought Iraq to, you know, to prominence. I mean, he, he right. a healthcare system, nationalizing oil, doing all that wonderful stuff where people loved him and were excited he was going to be the president. You know, I mean, so... It, you know, Bill Clinton, for all of his faults, you know, he, he did a few good things, too. And right. people forget that, you know, I mean, hey, he's the last one to have a balanced budget around here. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> I mean, that's that's something, you know, say what you want about him. So um, now. After you got rescued, I mean, tell me the the emotion that you're feeling. Um, whew, It was. Hard to fathom because when we were on that airplane, the U.S. soldiers weren't allowed to speak to us. So they were in complete silence. We asked questions. No one answered. All we were told is we're not allowed to get up off our seat. We had layovers. And during those layovers, the airplane would be restocked, refueled, and cleaned while we're still on it. If we needed to go to the bathroom, we had to raise our hand and someone would come and escort us and wait outside the bathroom and bring us back to our seat. And we had a layover in Dubai, which is Dubai. And we're like, wait, we're still in the Middle East. We're not safe. Then we have a layover in Sri Lanka and we're like, okay, we're outside of Middle mm -hmm. East. And then we're told we're going to land in Guam. And we all went, where the hell is Guam? Because <laughs> I right. in Iraq, we're not taught U.S. 
geography, history, nothing. We're not allowed to do that. And so we had no idea where we were taken. And so for 26 hours of being on that airplane, we had no clue what was happening. Hmm. And then we landed and there were soldiers at the bottom of the stairs cheering and clapping and celebrating and had toys in their hands for the little kids. And we were jet lagged, exhausted, confused, but yet everyone's happy around us. So that was, it took a while to adjust that we're safe. It's okay. Like you're safe. Go to bed. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, how long did it take you to finally kind of calm down and say, okay, like we're good. We're okay. A long time. Yeah. Years. And years. Like my husband will tell you, we've been married 18 years and I never used the word home until 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were traveling and I was like, I'm so ready to go home. And he looked at me and goes, you do realize that's the first time you've used the word home. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, you're right. Because I never had one that mm-hmm. felt like one because we were always on the run. So we never had that stability. So it took a long time to adjust mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, like just learning the way of life and adjusting and adapting. And each <laughs> obstacle, each step came with its own challenges. And But it's awesome to say of we've overcome all that and here we are on the other side of it. Yeah, and I got to say, I got to think that that is um... – that that had to have an impact i mean your experience and your trauma had to have an impact on your marriage oh yeah absolutely temper would rise very quickly mm-hmm. for a while until therapy kicked in temper mm-hmm. would like i'd flare up very quickly i had nightmares for a long long time long time i mean we were married a month <laughs> my poor husband and he his back was to me while we were sleeping and he was rolling over and I happened to open my eyes when he rolled over and I literally just punched him as hard as I could in the face because <laughs> my register where I was. Oh wow. And he's like, What? He was yeah. bleeding, it was bad. And then I snapped, realizing, oh my goodness, like those moments. Um, I can't watch war movies. I mm-hmm. choose not to watch them, but the few I've watched have triggered. So I stay away from those um, horror movies, any, anything, anything that's outside the norm causes, <laughs> used to cause nightmares. So my friends and my husband will screen movies, will screen shows for me. And, and I'm a, I'm not just a visual person. If, if I hear it, I don't have to see it. Even if I hear it, I'll, I'll visualize it. Oh, and so wow. watching a movie and there'll be like a small part in it that I shouldn't be exposed to. Right. And he'll be like, it's coming up. Close your eyes. So I put a blanket over my head and I plug my ears mm. because I wow. can't see it or hear it. And then he'll tap me like it's over. And mm. one of my closest friends in Hawaii, he'll pre-screen movies and shows for me. And he'll call Charles and be like, make sure like, um, what was the move? The show Jack Ryan. On yeah. Prime. My yeah. friend going to watch it. Same time. My husband's watching it. And my friend calls and he's like, make sure she doesn't watch it. Yeah. Like, how do you? I already pre-screened. She's not allowed to see that. So yeah, I since therapy, I've learned what triggers me. I've learned what happens when my adrenaline kicks in. I've learned a lot of tools to say there are days I'll tell them my adrenaline it wants to kick in. I don't know why. Heads up. 
And that automatically sets the stage of if I get mad, it's not him. It's not my kids. It's just, and I'll tell my kids, Hey, mommy's just having one of those days. So if I snap at you, no, it's not you. And so we've learned my triggers. We've learned what sets me off and we just kind of maneuver around that. And it's been good. Yeah. So now your um tell me now about your parents. Uh are they still alive? Where do they live? Yeah, yeah. I have two sisters. One's married and they live in Idaho here. And mm-hmm. my parents live in Colorado still. And I my aunts, uncles, all of them, my the final batch of people made it out. So mm. yeah. Man. So now that you're, you know, now that you're out, tell me. I mean, what's been the biggest culture shock of coming to America? (laughs) What was the biggest thing? Let me tell you, let me give you, let me give you a little context. I was in Italy uh, years and years ago, and I remember running into a German couple in Italy. And in Italy, when you, I don't know if you've ever been there, but like in Italy, they eat for hours and it's Mm -hmm. like, it's like family style sitting. What's that? Assyrians eat for hours. Right. So, but they'll just put you in with other people and you guys will just start talking. And, and so as I was talking to these people, this guy says, I really want to visit America. I'm like, yeah, it's a great place. And he goes, I just want to eat Whoppers all day, every day. And I was like, that is what you think we do. And then he's like, (laughs) I hear, he's like, I hear there's a fast food restaurant in every corner. I was like, it's not that bad. And then I flew back and then driving home, I was like, oh, it is that bad. We do have (laughs) Yeah. So like, what was it for you when you got here? What was the biggest culture shock? Um, my, so I had an aunt who had been here a long, a while and her husband came and took us to McDonald's and we ordered a hamburger, thought it was just going to come hamburger and it came back as cheeseburger. Well, we don't eat cheese with food. We don't eat melted cheese. We eat cheese for breakfast with bread and tea. And that's it. Cheese's job is done till the next morning. <laughs> and we come here and it is literally in everything, everything. And it was, and it's wonderful, right? Never could, but then most people don't understand why I can't eat cheese. So I just tell restaurants allergies now because it's easier to say allergies than to say uh-huh. don't put cheese on it for fun for no reason. That was hard. Um, and that that was definitely an adjustment to remember, oh, don't put cheese on my sandwich. Um, but then the worst, the worst adjustment was Halloween. Really? Okay, really? think about it. I when I first came, I literally was taken to high school. I tested out a freshman year because even though Middle East is in a lot of turmoil, education is very important in Middle East. And so by eighth grade, I was in advanced physics, advanced chemistry, advanced biology, and calculus. Oh, wow. And then you come here and you're like, you're learning what? Right. As what? You know, so it, that was that was different because education is very farther advanced than I've noticed it here. So I tested out a freshman year and then I got taken to school and dropped off without anyone escorting me in. I was literally told, thrown in the ocean without a life vest and say swim. And I don't know how to swim. Mm. And so I walk in, I walk into the counselor's office. I'm given a schedule and I'm looking, I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Because in Iraq, students don't change classes. Teachers change classes. Mm. You are assigned a seat and that is your seat for the rest of the year. Mm. 
And here I have a piece of paper. So I look and I'm like, all right, it says 208. And I look on the walls, there's numbers at the doors. I'm like, okay, those, those two are associated. So I had to figure out my school that way. Mm. So that was hard. I come from uniform, no makeup, no jewelry, no nail polish. And you can imagine high school in America. Right. What's odd. And then I was a dork. I was a complete dork. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't wear makeup. I didn't do any of that. I was, no one ever showed me any of that. But then October 31st comes and I go to school. I open the door and all I see is mask and blood. Mm. I didn't know it's paint, right? Uh, You take a child with PTSD, with severe trauma, and you put them in front of that. I freaked out. I literally walked backwards. I shut the door and I walked five miles home and I cried the whole way home. Wow. How did it come here? How did it follow me here? And so I go home, I tell my mom and she's like, I'm frantic. She tries to calm me down. She's not understanding what's happening. So she calls the attendance office. The attendance lady gets really annoyed because she doesn't understand why I had a hard time with it. Mm. The next day, I go to school, everything's back to normal. And my math teacher was Christian and he was part of the church that helped collect clothes and furniture for our family. Mm. And I'm at my desk and he goes, hey, kiddo, where were you yesterday? And I told him what happened. He started laughing. He goes, why don't you stay after class and I'll tell you what Halloween's about. So he was the first one who told me the day after. And so that, <laughs> that was such a huge struggle. And then watching my parents be taken advantage of by a car dealership because they didn't speak very good English, Mm. were sold a very bad car for a very high price and very high interest because he knew he could get away with it. And watching them struggle making those payments, I took it upon myself to learn about cars, to learn about loans and interest rates. So that never happened again. So every time we faced an obstacle, it was like, nope. So I just kind of teach myself those things and get us out of it somehow. So- Okay, this this is really interesting because, I mean, you you're obviously a go getter, and like, where did you think that came from? The Assyrian culture is very yeah. much like that. Really? Absolutely, women in my culture are powerhouses. They're resilient. Re- resiliency is ingrained in us. I mean, look at us. We survived. We made it, and we told ourselves every day we were going to make it. Right? It's the 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 family atmosphere we grew up around was very strong women, very strong families, very close families. So we got through it no matter what. We don't give up. We don't take our time. But also, to be honest, without God, none of it would have been ha- possible because I did. High school was very hard. My first few months were very hard. And I went through depression for a long time where I cried on my way home every day because I didn't fit in. I didn't dress right. I didn't look like everybody else. My English is half broken. And um, so I would spend my nights in my room on my bed crying all night, cry myself to sleep every night. But then God revealed that he didn't, I didn't go through everything and he didn't bring me 12,000 miles so I could just waste it. And I realized that there was more to my life and that that's not how I needed to live. And that's where that mindset change happened. Instead of, whoa, me, it became, oh, no, we're not putting up with this. We're going to make something of it. And so he kind of guided me and held my hand through all of it to help me push through 
and just overcome depression, get myself out of it and push through school. And I joined the soccer team, which women don't do that in Iraq. And I joined several different clubs throughout school. And I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but I faked it till I learned it and made it when I thought, bought um, teen magazines and learned how to wear makeup and learned what to to buy. And, you know, and so just learned all of it and just started experimenting and making it and got a job and I just pushed through. Man. Well, and that's the thing, right? I've I've noticed uh, people who are go-getters and people who tend to be successful. Also, a lot of them tend to come from traumatic childhoods learning, having to learn to cope and being right. through extreme circumstances and knowing you can handle it. Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> I find that so intriguing that, I mean, you, you had, there has to be a, a portion of you that is like, if I could get through war torn Iraq, I could pretty much do it, do Absolutely. anything. Right. Yeah. Tell me, you said something in your book too, that I thought was really, um, interesting is you you mentioned you you really highlight that you are grateful to be an assyrian mm-hmm. and of all the cultures god could choose you're glad he chose to make you an assyrian considering all of the stuff you had to go through why is that <laughs> first of all i'm grateful for the rich history i love history love social studies love learning about people and who what makes them who they are and their culture and food i'm a foodie so I love history and I'm so grateful that mine goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, right? It's so deep. It's so ingrained and Assyrian churches and schools and make sure that we don't forget that. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I can say that and most people don't know where they came from, but I can. And so mm-hmm. that's important. But then also I come from a strong family that we're resilient and we push through no matter what. And as you continue reading, you'll see that resiliency show up in my parents and my aunts and my uncles of we're going to pick up the pieces and we're going to move on no matter what's going to happen. We still had weddings. We still had parties and we still had gatherings during the day. And then at night we just put up and with the missiles, right? It was the norm, but without, I just, hold on. I, just, I just have to, that is just like, it's just, it's so, as an American who's never dealt with that, like, and the, during the day we hung out and then we just put up with the missiles. Like that is just that, it was to, a reality. like to sit there and think that there are people who live that they're like, yeah, in the day we're having family time, we're hanging out, playing soccer, doing stuff. And then we just put up with missiles in the evening. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's surprising, but it's like, it, that does breed such resilience. Also, by the way, you say you're a foodie, but you don't want cheese on your sandwiches. So I don't know. You're a questionable foodie. Okay. (laughs) Where's your Where's your Where's your favorite? What's your favorite kind of food? I mean, all Assyrian, Thai food, Mexican food, any Latin, anything Chinese food, you name it, I'll eat it. I love variety. All American food, steak and potatoes. We just my kid. I've made sure my kids are foodies. They're not as picky. And so we experiment, we go out, we try new things. We love that. But one thing I wanted to mention is the reason I'm so grateful for my past and who I am is because honestly, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't been through all that. 
Yeah. And yeah. it has created a resilient human being that my daughters can look up to and I can motivate and encourage those around me to say, if I can make it through that, you can make it through anything and to push through. Cause there's times where I have to tap into that and say, okay, yeah. I can do this. I don't want to, but I can do this because I've been through worse. And so I can't take credit for who I am today. If God hadn't not saying he punished me or put me through that, but if God hadn't chosen that culture for me and if he hadn't chosen my time in life and my, you know, my, my life purpose, I, don't know that I'd want that. I, I'm grateful and I would do it all over again. You know, that's the thing. It's it's funny. I've had a lot of conversations with people who've had challenges with faith or trials in their life. <clears throat> and it's it's interesting what you just said because um you're right. You know, I think those times when you go through those trials, you learn so much more about yourself mm-hmm. than at any other time. Like the it's true. Like the answers to all of life's questions are really in the pain. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and it's so, so, you know, I can't think it's, it's funny because I've had a lot, I've had a lot of trials in my life. I mean, I've never lived in a war torn country, but I've had, you know, I've had some stuff go down in my life. And when the thing that's so interesting about that is I can't think of a single um, a single traumatic event that's gone in my life where I haven't come out better. Right. You know what I mean? And, and I haven't, and not only better, like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm better financially or I end up in a better spot, but like more empathetic, right? more helpful to other people. And, you know, it really shapes you and fortifies you. Yet every time something bad happens, when I'm in the middle of it, I'm like, "Why don't I go through this?" You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. and, and why don't? Why is it? Why do you think? I mean, you're a woman of faith. Why is it that you think that while you're going through it, you don't necessarily remember that? You know what I mean? Right. It's hard because Satan, the enemy, tries to keep us focused on the trial instead of the victory at the end of the line. Like. Trials make us stronger and build character because we're building for what's next. If Mm -hmm. I hadn't been through that, I couldn't be a motivational speaker now inspiring people. If I hadn't been through that, I couldn't have written a book that would shed light on why Middle East is always in turmoil and why things are happening the way they're happening. I, I needed to go through that. And Satan likes to keep our attention on, whoa, me, oh my goodness, I'm going through that. Instead of remembering Jesus already won the battle. He's, he's victorious and we just need to kind of fight our battles from the winning side saying we've already he already won it i just need to make make it through and i'm going to be on the other side and i'll be okay and i think once we shift our mindset from woe me or that mentality into he's already won which means everything's going to be fine which it always is right yeah then it'll be okay and once you change that perspective it's amazing what happens on the other side and how much smoother it gets to go through it but what's that verse by paul um paul where he says suffering creates perseverance perseverance keeps um character and character patience right that bible verse and so if you think about it that's how we build our characters but also our attitude in our trials is what matters you know i have to ask you throughout all this um i find it i think a lot of people going through the type of trauma you would have gone through might lose their faith. Was there ever a, was there ever a time in your life where you questioned? 
That is Love so it. surprising. You know, and it's it it almost makes me frustrated with some of the people I know who like they go through the littlest thing and they're like, God doesn't love me. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, God doesn't love me. Oh, this terrible thing happened to me. God hates me. God isn't real. And you know, you went through one of you know, you you literally just said we put up with missiles in the evenings. You know what I mean? And like you never once no. questioned whether God was there. Because one thing about the Assyrian culture we're taught is that you don't ever disrespect God in any way. You don't put your Bible on the ground. Mm -hmm. You don't put, you respect the Bible. You put it, you hold it with honor. You read it with honor. You don't put a cross on the ground. You don't, anything that's godly or biblical, you do not disrespect it. You do not. So we were raised ingrained with the concept of God, the almighty, our father. You don't disrespect him. You don't question him. You don't. You may say, oh, why is this happening? But you don't say, whoa, God, why did you do this to me? Right. That was never. But then also constantly, as you start reading the rest of the book, you'll see watching God's faithfulness over and over and over. How can I question him when he always answered? He was always there. That faithfulness always was watching us. So when I know that's always there, you don't have a reason to question him. You just got to trust and keep going and push through. Man. That's really impressive because, like I said, I know a lot of people who, you know, they go through, I don't know, you know, they hear they hear something they don't like or someone offends them or they go through a divorce or something happens. And the next thing you know, they've lost all their faith. And to hear it's really encouraging to hear someone like you who, who remained faithful through it all. Um, what, what's next for Ramina Wilkerson? What do you, what's the next thing you've written this book? Now you're doing, you speak, what, what are you going to do now? You, you're obviously goal oriented. So what do you got next? Um, so I, right now the goal is just to spread the book, to get it out there, get it into as many hands, maybe make it into a movie. I think that would be cool. Just got to connect with the right people with that. Just get on more platforms. And really my heart is people to see that you can get through anything possible. Possibilities beyond your limitations is my tagline. And you can overcome anything with the right mindset. And I love helping people see that and get on more platforms. I also am a life coach. So I help work with people on one-on-one to help them see that. Youth, youth is my heart because we got to prepare the next generation, right? They're going to make our decisions someday. So, And I got to tell you, they're so soft. (laughs) And but you know what? That's okay. We can, we, we, there, there's room, there's room to help and improve and work and change. And so that's definitely the goal is to get out there more and speak and talk and help and change and see where God takes all this and get the word out and just teach people about the Middle East and what's happening. And tonight, as you're putting your kids to bed, know that some parents aren't doing that. And so that that's very hard to swallow. And where people see the faithfulness and the resiliency, I'm hoping it opens their eyes that they can be just as resilient. It's not a story, but it's actually a daily activity that we can do and allow God to lead it. Yeah, I just it's funny. You you taught you remind me a lot of, you know, I talk a lot about mindset on this podcast. And mm-hmm. you know, my my son just did, you know, he he just made the varsity basketball team. I'm super proud of him. He was working really hard for that, but we just had this whole conversation about mindset. About you know, if if you um, if you're the type of person who has a tendency to just 
think about all the reasons why you can't do something or mm-hmm. all that. Like you're, you're, you're dooming yourself to failure before you even try. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you don't strike me as that person. Do you, I, I had to ask you though. So I, I do, you know, my kids live a completely different life than I do. You know, um, yeah. I'm an attorney. I've been financially successful. My came from a, a family that was not as successful and had a lot of, a lot of troubles. And so they live a completely different life. And I got to, I got to imagine, are you, are you like me where like you look at your kids and you're like, I don't know why you're complaining. I was in Iraq. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever do, do, you ever do that? Do you do um, that to your kids? Very few. So a lot of people ask me if I've told my kids the story. I didn't for a long time because did your grandma ever tell you what it was like when she was a kid or your grandpa, you know, like your grandparents start saying when I was a kid and it gets to a point where you're like, yeah, yeah, you did this and that. You know, I never wanted my story to be that to my kids. Mm. I didn't want them to tune it out and being, yeah, yeah, there goes mom on her rent again. So I actually didn't tell them the story and they didn't hear me speak until two years ago, three years ago is the first Mm. time they heard me speak. And um, they're just when situation when Ukraine got attacked, we watched videos, we watched YouTube videos, Israel, YouTube, they've watched and they seen videos of what it's like for missiles to to hit the target and that. So I don't fully shelter them from what's going on in the world because I want them to grow up appreciating what they have. But there are very few times I'm like, oh, don't do that. But I also, I try not to nag them with it because (laughs) I want them to appreciate it when they're old enough to read the book and they're, they can't stomach it right now. I don't think they should, Um, but they've heard some horrific stories. And so I kind of, Yes and no, if that answers it, but I also expose them to what's going on in the world a lot more than most kids are. My kids can tell you what dictatorship is, what communism is. They'll explain what Middle East is. Like they can tell you those things at 10 and 14. Because you know, they need to know that. That's, that is huge. And, and I gotta, I gotta uh, ask you because there are a lot of people you probably, I got to imagine you get annoyed by this, but there are a lot of people who complain about what goes on here in mm-hmm. America. Does that frustrate you? Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 can you, can yeah. you explain, can you explain, explain why I want my listeners to hear why that bothers you? Because no matter how bad it gets here, no matter how bad you don't agree with the president or how bad you don't agree with your governor or how much you disagree with whatever is happening, at the end of the day, you get to go to bed peaceful. You still have a job. You're not being drafted. Your children are safe. You don't have to think about your wife and kids being raped or kidnapped. And every day you receive small body parts in a bag. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't have to worry where your next meal comes from. We lived for two months. We went through a stretch where we had no money, no food. We literally ate off of our neighbor's leftovers for two months. We ate our neighbor's leftovers. And so you don't get to experience that here. And that's a blessing. So look at that as a blessing instead of focusing on the bad that is happening is saying, I still have this and this and this and this going good for me. And the minute we shift that mindset, right? You realize what you're complaining about is actually not that big of a deal. And it's not the end of the world. It'll get better. Always does. Yeah. There's a reason why people are always wanting to come here, you know? And, and so 
Anyhow, um, I appreciate your time. I have a few questions to ask everybody. I want to pitch to you and see what you say. Okay. Okay. All right. First one, what would you say is your biggest success in life? Hmm. Outside of my family, I would say right now, this book right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got I to gotta say it again. I really have to say it. When, yeah. when uh, a lot of the people that I have on here who've written books, they are self-published. And not all books are created equal. And I got to tell you, of all the ones I've read in preparations for um, a podcast, yours is the is the most well written. I mean, and I credit. Well, yes, and and I got to tell you that you are very talented. I mean, like this, I've written. I I write a lot for for a living. I mean, as an attorney. And uh, I mean, legal writing is not the same, but the fact that you can get me to read this and be kind of feel like I'm there. Yeah. So that's quite a talent you have. Thank and you. And so um, speaking of that, this is a good time. Where can people find this book? Amazon. You can find it on Amazon. So just look for Walking in the Shadow and put my name next to it because there's a lot of books with that title. As soon as you put Ramina next to it, it'll come up. Okay, great. Now, here's the next question. Uh, what would you say is your biggest failure in life and what did you learn from it? Biggest failure was when I first came to U.S. and after I adjusted and after I learned about cars and makeup and dressing and got a job, I re I kind of let go of God. So for a long time in my life, I held on to him so tightly because Jesus walked me through everything. But when we got here, I was like, oh, I don't need that anymore. So I kind of told him to sit in the passenger seat and let me drive. And yes, I read my Bible every day. Yes, I prayed every day. But I didn't have that intimate relationship with him as much as I used to and as much as I do now. And so I did that for a couple of years, foolishly for a couple of years, because I thought I could lead my life. Because I didn't, right? You're free. You're you're safe, sleeping through the night to the best you can. And so I did that. And that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. That is the most embarrassing thing I've ever done. And I regret it. I've repented and I've restored that relationship. And I got to say it's best, better than it's ever been. And I just, I'm so grateful that he's so forgiving that he'll take us back anytime we're Mm -hmm. willing to come back and say, "I, I need you. I want you. What years were those? How old were you when that happened? Um, I would say from, so I, we got here at 14, I got here when I was 14. I would say once like high school ended. So from 18, 19 to about 24, 25. Yeah. I kind of mm-hmm. just, it's interesting though, because that tends to be the age that that happens. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. like if you look at it, you look at the statistics within our, the, within the Mormon church, uh, you know, the boys and a lot of the girls now go on missions, you know, 18, 19. But if they yeah. don't, they tend to kind of, uh, you know, fade away for a while. Some come back, some don't. What was it that ultimately was there some sort of catalyst that ultimately kind of switched that mindset back? Just realizing the void that I had in my life, just realizing, I mean, the Holy Spirit still talked to me and I still listened, but I didn't obey to the full and I didn't. Um, I was, I climbed the corporate ladder. I got my bachelor's degree in business. I got my master's degree in um, sport management because I love sports. It's another thing women don't do. 
And so, <laughs> right. So I, when I got here, I was on a mission to do everything women didn't do in my culture. So I got a sports car instead of minivan, even though I have kids. I, <laughs> I I do MMA instead of other sports because that's not the norm. Got the master's degree. Like I pushed myself to do things that women in my culture either don't have the opportunity or don't do it because they're women. Because I, again, I want to be an example of, yes, you can do all of it. And I went worked in the corporate world and climbed the corporate ladder and achieved a lot and managed and did was very successful, but then God called me to quit my job and go on a different path. And I didn't listen and I didn't obey. And he kept pushing and pushing. And I went, I flat out told him no, because I was making too much money. And here I am coming from eating neighbor's leftovers and trusting him with that. And all of a sudden I'm not trusting him with no income. Man. So that, And I started having chest pains and I started having like severe heart pain and in meetings, I would sit and I would be fighting for air. Finally had to go see a cardiologist who did. He's like, you need, you, we need to do stress tests. We need to figure out why you're struggling. Like they did a, a heart monitor for two days and my heart was out of whack, insanely out of whack. And I went to the cardiologist and um, right before I went to the cardiologist, let me back up for a second. I was in bed one night and all of a sudden my body just shut down. I couldn't mm. feel anything from the neck down, completely done. And in that moment, I surrendered. I said, okay, what do you want? And he goes, I want you to quit your job, like flat out. And I was like, mm. fine, you win. Like, I can't fight you anymore. This hurts too much. It was almost six months of severe pain. And all of a sudden, I could feel my heartbeat come back and my blood started flowing. Like, literally, my body was shut down except for my brain. And that moment when my husband woke up in the morning, I was like, um, I need to tell you something that happened last night. And so that's mm. when, like, we need to go see a cardiologist. So we did. They did the stress test and the nuclear, the echogram, all of that. And the doctor flat out said, whatever's causing this needs to stop because your heart's not going to take much longer. Mm. And that's when I was like, okay, all right, God, you win. You got this. And that was the first time he kind of started tugging me and pulling me back. And that's when he sent my sister to move in with us from a different state. And I quit my job. And let me tell you that like that day when I left, it was done. That pain that oh. was done. But that's when he's like, okay, time to start working on the book and time to start doing different things and shifting from corporate world to platforms and speaking and inspiring and encouraging and motivating. And so that's when I started writing and that was in 2016. And so that's when I went on a deep dive journey where I don't let go anymore. I will never let go again. I don't want to go through that. I didn't like life without him. Not that I was without him, but I didn't seek him in everything. And now we literally seek him in every decision, even our vacations. We pray and say, is this where you want us to go? Mm -hmm. and so, and he guides and you know what, when we pray and seek him, he literally answers. He wants to be part of our lives and he loves being part of our lives. And we've noticed that our vacations are different. They're more fun, but then we also, he uses us on them. So that's been really inspiring to, and then the girls are watching that. And so the more they're watching it, the more they're doing it in their own things and their own lives. And it's been amazing to witness and I don't want to let go again. No, that's awesome. Let go again. <laughs> uh, well, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, it, it's impressive to me that you're so faithful that you're you're even 
praying and asking God where you should go on vacation. I mean, we pray over our furniture. When we bought our couches, it was like, God, which one? And he said to wait. And then three months later, he said, today go. And we did. And they had the right color we wanted that day. Wow. And so, so and the thing is, <laughs> and the thing that's so interesting about that is someone who is not a believer is going to listen to that and think that's crazy. Right. It is. But, it but it's like, but at the same time as a believer, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And those are faith promoting events, you know? Yes. And so it was funny when you mentioned you're like, oh, I'm into sports and I'm into MMA. I'm like, well, this this could go another three hours because I could talk <laughs> all day about all of that stuff as a as a pro wrestler and a guy who loves MMA and all that. We could definitely talk about all that. So that's that's awesome. Well, uh, the last question I have uh, for you is: at some point, way down the road, you're going to pass away, and there's going to be a funeral, and usually someone gives a eulogy. What's one the one thing you hope someone says about you in your eulogy? That I followed Christ faithfully and I obeyed him in every way. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so Romina, uh it I'm so glad that uh we'll we'll call him by his his wrestling gimmick name, Trip Rogers introduced <laughs> us. Uh and and uh, I'm glad you came on here. It's been enlightening for me. I hope the people who are listening to this has learned a little bit about what it's really like in the Middle East and and also learned a little bit about uh, faith and how that plays a role, even in traumatic events. You've lived, it's it's so interesting that you're so faithful, especially considering you've lived one of the more traumatic lives probably that someone can live in the world. And your faith is really inspiring. So I appreciate that. And I'm, <clears throat> and I'm not just blowing smoke. I don't always, I don't always like really, really push, but I will say that this book, Walking in the Shadow, I get, I always get, it's like, there you go. That's what it looks yeah. like, Walking in the Shadow by Ramina Wilkerson. Look it up on uh, on Amazon. I got it in Prime, so it came like a day later, so it was great. Uh, the hardcover, however, takes like 60 days to get to you. I wanted to buy a hardcover. Because there's no sales and I'm a new author. So all new uh-huh. authors, the hardcover takes that long because there's not enough sales to support it. Uh, so okay, yeah. that's okay because i was I, I originally bought the hardcover and i'm like i was like that's gonna be like 45 days yeah. and i was like that's not yeah, enough that's hard yeah so but anyhow um but it's it's out there and um you know i appreciate your time it, are you do you have any speaking engagements coming up um not at the moment right now no okay where if people want to follow you where can they find you so they can find me on Facebook, Instagram. I also have my website. They're all under my name, RaminaWilkerson.com. Um, and even on the website, they can, if they want to book me for speaking or just email me, message if they need to talk, someone, a life coach, whatever they need um, to share their review, their thoughts, questions, website is the best way or Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, so you know where to go. Follow her. Get the book. And uh, we've still got a lot more fun stuff coming up. Got a lot of things in the works. So keep listening. Subscribe. And Ramina, we, uh, let's do this again. We'll have you on again sometime. Agreed. I will be here anytime. Let me know. Thank you so right. much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem. All right. We'll see you guys.